Amen. All right, we're there in Job chapter number 40. And of course, on Wednesday nights, we've been studying through the book of Job. And there's 42 chapters in Job, but we've taken one chapter a week. And we are almost done with the book of Job. We're in chapter 40, just have a few weeks left. And uh, chapter 40, chapter 41, and of course, chapter 42 are very interesting chapters. Uh, Really, since God began to speak, they're very interesting chapters. And we have a lot to cover tonight, so I hope that you are uh, ready to... Uh, study God's Word together. Chapter 40 of the book of Job is divided into two sections. The first section is when God takes a break. Remember, God's been asking Job all these questions that Job can't answer. Now God takes a break from those questions, and he uh, takes a break in order to rebuke Job about not having the answers. He does that in verses 1 through 14. And then in verses 15 through 24, uh, begins a new section where God begins to describe a, another animal. Now, if you remember in, in chapter 39, he began to, to talk about the stewardship of the, of the creatures and, and who takes care of the animals. And we even talked about a unicorn. But in, in chapter, uh, at the end of this or in the middle of this chapter, he begins to talk about this uh, beast called Behemoth. And then in the next chapter, he talks of another one called Leviathan. It's very interesting. We'll look at it tonight. But let's, let's just kind of uh, jump right into uh, the passage here. Look at verse 1. The Bible says, moreover, and the word moreover means in addition to what has been said. And of course, if you've been with us, you know that he's been asking these questions. In chapter uh, 38, he asks these questions about creation. In chapter 39, he asks questions about the creatures. He says, moreover, the Lord answered Job and said, shall he that contendeth with the Almighty instruct him? Now remember, in the first 14 verses, God is rebuking Job here. And uh, some, some people will say, and, and sometimes people take the position that Job didn't do anything wrong uh, in, in, in the book of Job. And I, I would disagree with that position uh, because of the fact that God actually rebukes Job. We're going to see that God rebukes him here. And I agree that Job did not curse God. And I agree that Job did not charge God foolishly. And he won the bet, if we could call it that, uh, the challenge in, in that, that started off the book of Job where uh, Satan challenged God to remove and to take all the blessings from Job and to see if Job would not curse him to his face. Job did not do that. And for that, he is a hero. And I'm not trying to take anything away from Job. But as we've been studying the book of Job, it's become apparent that at, at times, and again, I'm not kicking Job because I, you know, if you and I went through what Job has gone through, I don't know we would, we would, I, I doubt, I know I wouldn't have done better than Job, and I doubt you would have done uh, better than Job as well. But what we see is that Job did at times complain and criticized and even tried to correct God and some of the things that he'd done. And God here declares that since Job cannot answer these questions, because remember, God began to ask these questions. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Where, you know, can you do this and can you do that? Do you understand this? Who takes care of these animals and who does all these things? Now God says to Job that if you can't answer the questions, Job, then maybe that means that you are not qualified and you have no right to criticize or attempt to correct God. That's, what he's, that's what's going on. Look at verse 1 again. Moreover, the Lord answered uh, Job and said, Shall he, he's referring to Job, that contendeth with the Almighty, referring to himself, God is the Almighty, notice, instruct him. Here's what God is saying to Job. God is saying, Job, are, are you going to teach me something? Because you've been talking over the last several chapters about how if I can only get a hold of God and if I could go talk to God, if I can get God's attention, I've got some things I need to say to God. And God says, really? You've got some things you need to instruct me on? Because I've been asking you a lot of questions and you haven't been able to answer any of them. He says, shall he that contendeth with the Almighty instruct him? He that reproveth, the word reprove means to criticize or correct. He that reproveth God, let him answer it. And I notice the word answer there because God's been asking all these questions. He's like, you haven't answered one yet. If you're going to reprove me, Job, if you're going to criticize me, if you're going to correct me, let him answer it. And look, when you and I go through difficult times, the tendency is to question God, to criticize God, to correct God, to say God's not uh, paying attention, God's made a mistake, God's not doing right. But we must remember, and this was the point of all those questions that God gave, we do not have the qualifications to run the universe. 
We don't even understand how the universe works. We can't answer all these questions. So if God can run the universe, then he can probably run your life and my life without our input. Now let me just show you just real quickly some of these, uh, some of these things where Job uh, uh, made these comments. Just to give you an example. Go back to Job chapter 10 if you would. Job chapter 10. Because God is saying, so he that contendeth with the Almighty instruct him. Are you going to teach me anything, Job? He that reproveth God, let him answer. Are you going to answer these questions? Are you going to reprove me? Are you going to criticize me? Are you going to correct me? Notice what Job said in Job chapter 10. This is Job speaking, verse 1. Job 10.1. And again, realizing that Job is in a very difficult, low place in his life. But notice what he says. He says, my soul is weary of my life. He said, he said I'm tired of living. He says, my soul is weary of my life. I will leave my complaint upon myself. Notice, he admits that he's been complaining about what's been happening to him. He says, I will leave my complaint upon myself. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. He realizes that he's complaining. He realizes that he's bitter. He's, he's about to criticize uh, God. Look at verse 10. I will say unto God. Now, again, I want to reiterate that Job never quit on God. Job never charged God foolishly. Job never cursed God. Job never said, fine God, you're going to take away all my blessings? I'm not going to follow you anymore. Job never did that, but here's what he did do. He said, I will say unto God, do not condemn me. Here he's he's going to tell God what to do. And then he says, show me wherefore thou contendest with me. He's demanding that God give him a reason. The word wherefore means for what reason. Show me wherefore thou contendest with me. Is it good unto thee? This is Job speaking to God. And notice what he says. Is it good unto thee that thou shouldest oppress? That thou shouldest despise the work of thine hands? Job is saying, you're oppressing me. I'm the work of your hands and you're despising me. And he's questioning God. He's criticizing God. Is it good, God, that thou shouldest oppress, that thou shouldest despise the work of thine hands and shine upon the counsel of the wicked? Job says, you're you're shining upon the wicked while oppressing uh, and despising me. and, uh, and, And it's not right, is what Job's saying. Do not condemn me. Show me wherefore thou contendest with me. So again, Job is a hero. He is a superstar. He did not quit on God. He stayed faithful, but he did question God. He did criticize God. He did attempt to correct God. And because of that, God is calling him out and saying, okay, Job, you want to question me? You want to tell me that I did wrong, that I'm doing wrong, that I don't know what I'm doing? Well, you can't even answer. You can't even tell me how long a goat's pregnant for, Job. And you want to tell me that I'm doing wrong or incorrect? Now notice the response of Job. Job chapter 40, look at verse 3. Then Job answered the Lord and said, notice his response. Behold, I am vile. The word vile means wretched, bad. He says, what shall I answer thee? He says, I have nothing to say. He said, I don't have an answer to your questions, God. He says, I will lay my hand upon my mouth. Now, if you remember from Job 29 and verse 9, the the laying of your hand upon your mouth is a sign of reverence. Remember Job in Job 29, he told us that back when he was the man, when he was, you know, big stuff, when he was wealthy and successful and respected, he talked about the fact that he would walk into a room and the young men would put their hands over their mouth as a sign of respect, meaning we've got nothing to say. Uh, you're the boss. We, won't, we don't even want to speak till you've told us what you want. And now Job is saying to God, he says, I will lay my hand upon my mouth. He said, I've got nothing to say, God. You're the boss. Look at verse 5. Job says, once have I spoken, but I will not answer, yea, twice, but I will proceed no further. And I like, Job says, you know, maybe once or twice, God, I said some things, but I'm done. I I will proceed no further. Now, now here's what's interesting. Keep your finger there in Job 40, but go, go back with me to Job 23. God gives Job the opportunity to speak. Now remember, in the book of Job, Job's been asking. He's been asking 
for an opportunity to take God to court. That's kind of the terminology he's been using. He wants to take God to court. He wants to bring forth the evidence. And he wants to just ask God questions and, and have God answer him. And, and he's been talking kind of big about this. Job 23 is an example. Look at verse 3. Notice what Job says. He says, Oh, that I knew where I might find him. This is Job. And again, in, in bitterness, in a low place in his life, discouraged and disgruntled. He said, he's speaking about God. He says, oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to his seat. Uh, uh, he says, I would go to where he is, to his courthouse, to his judgment seat is what the reference is there. He says that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to his seat. What would you do, Job, if you would, could come to God and have the opportunity to speak to God about what's going on in your life. Verse 4, this is what Job said earlier in the book. I would order my cause before him and fill my mouth with arguments. He said, I would have so much to say. I, I, I would have all sorts of things. If I just had the opportunity to, to, to talk to God, I, I've got some questions for God. He's got some explaining to do. But in, the interesting thing is that fast forward to Job chapter 40. God says, okay, be careful what you ask for. You wanted to talk, Job? Let's talk. What do you got to say? And he says, I will lay my hand upon my mouth. He says, I am vile. What shall I answer thee? See, God gives Job the opportunity to speak, and when given this opportunity in contradiction of Job's previous claims, Job has nothing to say. And by the way, neither would you. And neither would I. So let's be careful about talking big before God shows up. Because when the tornado shows up, when the whirlwind shows up, and God begins to speak, and God says, oh, you've got some questions for me? Well, I've got some questions for you. And God begins to show you his power and his might. You might put your hand over your mouth and say, I am vile. What shall I answer thee? So God, go back to Job 40, look at verse 6. God continues then to reprove Job. Now, what God does in verses 6, 7, and 8, he reproves Job for using a common tactic of self-exaltation. Now, this is something that you and I as human beings usually do this amongst ourselves. Job did it to God, so God is going to call him out for it. God is going to correct him. But let me just say this. This is something that is wrong that none of us should ever do. God reproves Job for using a common tactic of self-exaltation. Now, notice what, what is said here in verse 6. Then answered the Lord unto Job. Because God, God's about to, uh, to, to, to bless Job and, and restore Job. Before he does that, he's wanna, he wants to show off just a little more and show off some really cool beasts that, that God has created. But, but he wants to just uh, address some things with Job. The Bible says, Then answered the Lord unto Job out of the whirlwind and said, verse 7, Gird up thy loins like a man. Those are like kind of fighting words. Like, you know, be a man. Come on, get up. I will demand of thee and declare thou unto me. Wilt thou also disannul? The word disannul means to make void, to cancel, to invalidate. Wilt thou also disannul my judgments? Judgments have to do with choices made uh, and, 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 and the fact that God has made decisions based off of uh, Job. And, and what God is saying to Job, he says, I've made some choices concerning you, Job. Are you going to disannul my judgments? Are you going to make void and invalidate the choices that I've made? Then he says this at the end of verse 8. Will, this is what God is saying to Job. Will thou condemn me that thou mayest be righteous? Now, I want you to notice that question. Because this is a common tactic of self-exaltation. Now, if you've ever done this or if you do this, you ought to be aware of it. But oftentimes, we, our vain brain doesn't allow us to see our own faults. So let me just say this. If somebody's doing this to you or in front of you, you should be aware of this. The problem that God had with Job is found at the last part of verse 8, that last question. Will thou condemn me? This is God speaking. God says, Job, are you going to condemn me that thou mayest be righteous? Now, here's the interesting thing. God has no problem with Job being righteous and declaring his righteousness. God has no problem in the world with Job being righteous. In fact, God betted on it, remember? 
God told Satan, has thou considered my servant Job, that he is a perfect and an upright, a righteous man. And in fact, I'm willing to accept the challenge. I'll take all his money. I'll take uh, all his children. I'll take all, all his health. I'll take his wealth. I'll have his friends turn on him. I'll have his wife turn on him. And I bet you he still will be righteous. So God had no problem with Job being righteous and declaring his righteous. In fact, in chapter 42, God's going to say, Job was right. You guys were wrong. Say you're sorry. And you know, Job, he didn't say say you're sorry, but you know, that's the idea. Job had to pray for his friends that God uh, would, would forgive his friends for the things he said. God had no problem with Job being righteous or declaring his righteousness. God did have a problem with Job condemning God. Wilt thou condemn me that thou mayest be righteous? See, I don't understand. Here's what God said. You could have declared your righteousness without condemning me, Job. You could have said, hey, I'm righteous. I'm right with God. I'm walking in my integrity. I don't know why this is happening to me. I don't know why God took away my children. I don't know why God took away my wealth. I don't know why he took away. He took my health away. I don't know why God did that, but I know this. I'm right with God. And if Job would have left it there, that would have been fine. In fact, the best parts, arguably the best parts of the book of Job are the parts where Job says, I don't know what God is doing, but I trust in him. Because Job had his low points, but he also had his high points. I mean, what are the most well-known parts of, of the book of Job? It's when Job says, the Lord gave and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. One of the best parts of the book of Job is when Job said, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. See, if Job would have said, I'm going through this, I don't understand it, but I'm trusting in God, that would have been fine. But the fact that at times Job said, I'm going through this, I don't understand it, and it's not right, God. And I don't, and, and you need to explain this to me, God. And this is what God is saying. God is saying, I don't got a problem with you being righteous, but wilt thou condemn me that thou mayest be righteous? This is a common tactic of self-exaltation. When somebody wants to show how great they are and they have to bring someone else down to pull themselves up, this happens all the time. you got to criticize everybody else's soul winning to show how great of a soul winner you are. You know that you can be a great soul winner and not criticize everybody else's soul winning? You know that you can be a great usher and not criticize everybody else's ushering? You know how you can be a great song leader and not criticize everybody else's song leading? You know how you can be a great pastor and not criticize everybody else's pastor? You know that you can be a great uh, uh, employee and not criticize all the other employees or be a great manager and not criticize... Look, you don't have to bring others down to lift yourselves up. Job could have just declared his righteousness left it at that, but he condemned God, and this is what God calls him out for. He says, Wilt thou condemn me that thou mayest be righteous? So let me just help some of you out. You don't have to criticize everybody else's parenting to try to make you look like you're the great, great parent. Just be a great parent. Yeah, well, no, nobody would uh, acknowledge it. Well, why are you so worried about everybody else acknowledging it? God, doesn't God know? You don't have to criticize everybody else's marriage. Just try to make your marriage look good or, or whatever it is. Look, this is a common tactic, and we ought not do it. Let your actions speak for themselves. Let your ministry speak for itself. Let what you're doing speak for itself. God had no problem with Job being righteous, but he calls him out. Will thou condemn me that thou mayest be righteous? Then God reminds Job that Job is not like God. Look at verse 9. Has thou an arm like God, Job? God is asking Job, the Bible says the arm of God is mighty to save. The arm of God is powerful in strength. Has thou an arm like God? Or canst thou thunder with a voice like him? I like verse 10. He says, deck thyself now with majesty and excellency and array thyself with glory and beauty. Come on, Job, get dressed up. Dress yourself up in the nicest, best, most, uh, 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 just uh, awesome way possible. Are you going to be as good as I am? This is what God is saying. Verse 11. Cast abroad the rage of thy wrath, and behold everyone that is proud and abase him. He says, Job, can you behold everybody that is proud? Now look, think about that. There's a lot of proud people in this world. 
Can you behold everyone that is proud and abase him? Look on everyone that is proud and bring him low and tread down the wicked in their place. Hide them in the dust together and bind their faces in secret. He says, when you can do all that, Job, then will I confess unto thee that thine own hand, thine own right hand can save thee. But until then, <laughs> close your mouth. Amen. Quit criticizing. Quit correcting. Quit complaining against God. Because the truth is this. You couldn't do God's job. I couldn't do God's job. We don't even understand God's job. So we should just trust God. Then God does this in verse 15. He transitions from Job to another creature that he describes. In verse 15, he says, Behold now, Behemoth. Now, what God is doing is he's explaining his strength and his power. And he brings Job's attention to this animal called Behemoth. And God begins to explain what behemoth is. Now, I'm going to, most of you, I'm sure you know my thoughts on behemoth, and, and I'm going to explain that to you in a minute, but let me just give you some context um, for this part of the sermon. Evolutionary science teaches certain things, and this is the commonly accepted science in the society in which we live in, they teach certain things as fact that contradict the Bible. Let me give you some examples. One thing they teach is that the earth is 4.5 billion years old. Now, that's from what last time I looked up these numbers. It changes all the time. So who knows how old they say the earth is. But this is something they teach. Uh, let me just read to you uh, some, some quotes from different websites and articles to, to prove that. This is from the bbc.co.uk. The earth is a little over 4.5 billion years old. Homo sapiens, only 200,000 years. So humans have been around for a mere 0.004% of the Earth's history. So evolutionary science today, accepted science, the science you're going to learn if you go to some uh, school of higher education, public-type secular school, that the Earth is 4.5 billion years old. They also teach, as we just as I just read to you, that human beings have only been around for 200,000 years. Here's a, a, a quote from universitytoday.com. While our ancestors have been around for about 6 million years, the modern form of humans only evolved about 200,000 years ago. Here's what they also teach. Uh, accepted evolutionary science today teaches that dinosaurs went exi- uh, extinct 65 million years ago. Here's uh, from history.com. The Cretaceous Tertiary Extinction Event, or the KT event, is the name given to the die-off of the dinosaurs and other species that took place some 65.5 million years ago. This is from uh, Scholastic. They said the last dinosaur died approximately 65 million years ago. This is what is accepted science today. I'm not, I'm not reading jokes to you. This is what they teach as science uh, today. The earth is 4.5 billion years old. Human beings have been around for 200,000 years, and dinosaurs went exi- uh, extinct 65 million years ago. Now, if that's true, and I don't believe that's true, but If that's true, then we would make the conclusion, and they've made the conclusion, that no human being has ever seen a dinosaur. Because if the earth is 4.5 billion years old, dinosaurs lived 65 million years ago, they died off 65 million years ago, and humans only came around 200,000 years ago, then there's no way that any human being has ever seen a live dinosaur. Here's a quote from exploreit.org. They said, of course, no human being has ever seen a living dinosaur. The dinosaurs had been extinct for about 63 million years before humans appeared on earth. This is what they teach. This contradicts the Bible. Because the Bible teaches that the earth is about 6,300 years old, give or take, more or less. The Bible teaches that dinosaurs, mostly, not all, died off during the flood, 4,000 to 
4.5 thousand years ago. And, and, and I would say the Bible teaches that or those are the assumptions that we made, that, that we make as we read the Bible. The Bible teaches that human beings have been around since the beginning. The earth is 6,300 years old. Humans have been around uh, for 6,300 years, and they were created in the same creation week. Human beings were created in the same week as dinosaurs. What that, if that's true, which I believe it is, then what we could conclude is that human beings lived alongside dinosaurs. Now, again, people... People on the internet, they're going to hear this sermon and say, you're an idiot, you're uneducated, you're this and you're that. Let me tell you something. It's the same thing they said about the apostles. They said they were unlearned and ignorant men. But they marveled because they had been with Jesus. And I'd rather be with Jesus and his word than with some university where the Bible tells us the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And here's all I'm saying. Here's all I'm saying. Evolution teaches... The earth is 4.5 billion years old. Humans have been around 200,000 years. Dinosaurs went to 65 million years ago. Therefore, there's no possible way any human being has ever seen a dinosaur. The Bible teaches that the earth is 6,300 years old. That dinosaurs went extinct during the flood, primarily, mostly, not all. And they were created on the same day as human beings 6,300 years ago. Therefore, we can conclude that humans lived alongside dinosaurs. Now, people say, you believe that humans lived alongside dinosaurs? That is ridiculous. However, let me just say this. If... If, and I believe this is true, but if human beings live alongside dinosaurs, then there are some conclusions or there is some uh, evidence, there are some things that we could expect to see. In fact, there are four different types of evidence that we could expect to see if human beings walked uh, uh, with uh, dinosaurs. Now, here's, here's why I'm making a big deal about it. Because if humans walked alongside dinosaurs, that destroys the evolutionary teaching. That destroys evolution, that destroys all of their theology, and that, uh, uh, and that proves the Bible as true. You say, well, what, what, what proof would we be looking at if men walked with dinosaurs? Well, first and foremost, we'd find scriptural evidence. We'd find the dinosaur mentioned within the Bible if human beings lived alongside uh, uh, dinosaurs. Secondly, we would find physical evidence. Physical proof that could not be explained away that men walked alongside dinosaurs. Thirdly, we'd find circumstantial evidence. Things like myths or stories or legends of these great animals, if they walked alongside animals. Fourthly, we'd find testimonial evidence. Eyewitness accounts from credible and reliable sources that human beings walked alongside animals. Now, what I want to do tonight for the remainder of this sermon is I want to take the rest of this time that we have together and look at the first two evidences, the scriptural evidence and the physical evidence. And next week in chapter 41, we're going to look at the circumstantial evidence and the testimonial evidence to prove to you that men walked alongside dinosaurs. So let's start with the scriptural evidence. What is it? Dinosaurs are mentioned in the Bible. You say, where? The chapter we're in, behemoth. You say, well, behemoth, you know, doesn't sound like dinosaur. Okay, well, here's the thing. The word dinosaur was invented 200 years ago. So you're not going to find the word dinosaur in our King James Bible. Our King James Bible was translated 400 plus years ago. But I can, what, I, what I can show you is that the animal that's being described here is a dinosaur. Job 40, look at verse 15 again. Behold now behemoth. God says, look at him. Look at behemoth. By the way, which I made with thee. That proves that all creation was created all at the same, in the same week. The land animals and human beings were created on the same day of the creation week. Not 65 million years ago or whatever. Behold now behemoth which I made with thee. Now look at this animal. Look, look how God describes him. Number one, he eateth grass as an ox. He says he eats grass. You say, okay. Lots of animals eat grass. Then he says this in verse 16. Lo now, number two. His strength is in his loins, and his force is in the navel of his belly. The strength of this animal is in his loins and his belly. So what we would expect if we saw this animal is a large belly, a large, uh, 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 strong loins, because his strength is in his loins, and his force 
is in the navel of his belly. Now, let me just say this. The, the critics and the scoffers of the Bible will say, Behemoth is not a dinosaur. Behemoth is an elephant. Behemoth is a hippopotamus. You guys are ignoramus. You're fools. You don't understand science. This is it's just what's being referred to here as a hippo or an elephant or something like that. He eateth grass as an ox, his strength is in his loins, and his force is in the navel of his belly. Now, I realize that the world thinks that we're just uneducated fools. So what I did tonight is I actually printed some pictures just to help us understand these uh, different animals. There are some times that I wish we had screens like a liberal church, so I could just put up uh, pictures on screen, but we don't have any screens, so I'm just going to have to uh, show these to you. I try to print them large. Uh, so you could see him, but there's always a benefit to sitting up front, all right? So this is a picture of an elephant. Would everybody agree with that? That looks like an elephant, right? Everybody see that? All right. This is an elephant. Now, when we look at the elephant's uh, stomach and loins, yes, um, they are pretty big. This is a picture of a hippopotamus, all right? You see the hippopotamus? Everybody see the hippopotamus? If we look at the belly and the, of the hippopotamus, we would say, yeah, you know, it's a pretty large uh, belly. So God is describing for us this animal, and he says that he eateth grass as an ox. His strength is in his loins, and his force is in the navel of his belly. Then he says this in verse 17, because people say, it's, a, it's an elephant. It's a hippopotamus. That's it. Nothing to see here, folks. We've all seen these at the zoo. Elephants, hippopotamus. Look at verse 17. He moveth his tail like a cedar. Now, a cedar is a huge tree. And the Bible here tells us that this God describes the tail of this animal as a cedar. He says, this animal, he eateth grass as, as an ox, his strength is in his loins, and his force in the navel of his belly. And then he says, his tail like a cedar. His tail is huge like a cedar. Now the scientific scoffers say, this is an elephant. This is a hippopotamus. Okay, well, let me just show you this. This is the backside of a hippopotamus. I don't know if that's appropriate for me to show at church, but it's a creature of God. Now, it, the hippopotamus is a huge animal but it has a very small tail. In fact, I would not describe that as a cedar. God said his tail, like a cedar, the sinews of his stones are wrapped together. Say, so, oh, well, not, not the, it's not a hippopotamus, it is an elephant. All right, well, here's the backside of an elephant. All right? Again, not really like a cedar. It's like a rope. It's not like a cedar. So I understand that we're uneducated, but let's just make sure we understand. Elephant, big, big belly, rope of a tail, not a cedar. This is an elephant. This is a hippo. This is a turtle. All right? So um, just making sure we all understand. Look at verse 18. His bones are as strong pieces of brass. Notice that God is describing this animal as a very strong animal. Very big animal. He's got to be big if his tail is like a cedar. His bones are like brass and bars of iron. He says his bones are as strong pieces of brass. His bones are like bars of iron. Then he says this in verse 19. He is the chief of the ways of God. He that made him can make his sword to approach unto him. He that made him can make a sword to approach. So here's what God is saying. God is saying, this is the chief. The word chief means he's, he's the guy in charge, right? I mean, when he shows up, everyone's in charge. Just like Job used to be the chief. Well, look, when this animal shows up, all the other animals kind of scurry and get out of its way. Why? Because it is the chief of the ways of God. He that made him can make a sword to approach unto him. By the way, that phrase means this. The only one that could make his sword to approach unto this animal is he that made him, is God himself. Now, human beings kill elephants. And human beings kill hippopotamus. But God says, this animal, only I, only I can approach with a sword. Look at what he says in verse 20. Surely 
the mountains bring him forth food. God exaggerates the amount of food in the area that it would need to feed this animal. Where all the beasts of the field play. He lies under the shady trees in the covert of the reed and fens. The shady trees cover him with their shadow. The willows of the brooks compass him about. Behold, notice the size, verse 23, of this animal. He drinketh up a river and hasteth not. He trusteth that he can draw up Jordan into his mouth. This is such a large animal that God says he could drink up a whole river. In fact, this animal would think that he could just, you know, draw up the entire Jordan into his mouth. He taketh it with his eyes. His nose pierceth through snares. So we're talking about this animal with a big belly, strong belly, strong uh, sinews. Strong, his, his bones are like iron. He could drink up an entire uh, river. He's the chief of the ways of God. What is it that God is describing here? Well, here's what I believe God is describing. This thing. Now, you would look at this thing. And, uh, and, and today this will be called a brontosaurus, and they keep changing the names on these, so I don't know if that's the uh, name anymore that they call this thing. But this thing, I would say, yeah, big belly. The bones on this thing are probably like iron, and that tail is definitely like a cedar. This is behemoth, which we would call brontosaurus. We should start calling it behemothsaurus. Because what God is describing... Is a dinosaur. And, 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 and by the way, he's telling Job, look at it. Behold, he says. Look over there. You see behemoth? And Job's like, yeah, we've all seen behemoth. And he begins to describe this animal. So here's all I'm saying. If, if dinosaurs walked with humans, we would see, first of all, biblical evidence. The fact that the Bible refers or identifies a dinosaur. I think we've proven that. Now, obviously, if you're, if you're going to look for the word dinosaur in your King James Bible, you're not going to find that. But what God is describing is this. Behemoth. So we see scriptural evidence. You say, okay, well, they don't believe in the Bible anyway, so what about physical evidence? Here's some physical evidence. Physical proof that could not be explained away. Let me read to you from this article about the Stagosaurus of Cambodia. In approximately 1186, King Javarman VII undertook the building of a Tafrom, a stone monastery temple. The ruins of the Tafrom, which stand today in the overgrown jungles of Cambodia, were chosen by one of the major preservation societies to be left in its natural state. As an example of how most Angkor looked on its discovery in the 19th century. So, in the this 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 temple monastery was discovered in the 19th century. It was built in 1186, and it has. You say what's what's so important about this uh, about this monastery? What it has is it has its decorations all around the walls. These pictures of different animals, and they're, and they're very just normal animals, just the type of animals that we've all seen and, and you'd see. But one of the pictures that is uh, carved into the stone, I've got a picture here for you, and it's, it's, it's kind of blurry, but hopefully you can see it, is carved into the stone of a temple and monastery about a thousand years ago is this animal. Alongside it, are carved all sorts of other animals that are easily identified, birds and things like that. And this looks like, for us today, what has been excavated, a stegosaurus. Here's the thing, though. Dinosaur bones were just were, were found in the 1600s. In the 1600s, they found the bones of dinosaurs. They didn't know what they were looking at. They thought they'd found giant human beings. Some people still believe in giant, you know, Nephilim-type human beings. It wasn't until the 1800s that they began to put these bones together and realized, wow, there are some massive reptiles that lived on this earth. When this was carved, according to science, no human being had ever seen a dinosaur. Yet whoever carved this into stone had seen a stegosaurus. I mean, it's 
how could, how could they in 1186 so accurately portray for us exactly what a known dinosaur looks like today if not for the fact that human beings had seen dinosaurs because human beings had walked with dinosaurs because the Bible is true and the science that's being taught today is nothing but science falsely so-called. Let me give you another example of physical evidence. The Apatosaurus of southern Utah. Let me just read to you a little bit. On the underside of the third largest natural bridge in the world, the Kashina Bridge, several petroglyphs and pictographs exist, which rock art experts believe to be anywhere from 500 to 1,500 years old. The carvings are believed to be the work of the Anasi Indians who once lived in that area of southern Utah. A mountain goat, a human figure, multiple handprints, and many other carvings and drawings can be seen quite easily underneath the bridge on both sides of the span. The most fascinating piece of rock art at Kashina Bridge, however, is the petroglyph of a dinosaur. The figure which is carved into the rock has a long, thick tail, a long neck, a wide midsection, and a small head. Sounds like behemoth. Any unbiased visitors to Kachina Bridge would have to admit that this particular petroglyph looks like a dinosaur, specifically Apatosaurus, more popularly known as Brontosaurus. Let me show you a picture of this petroglyph. This is drawn into a cave, they believe, 500 to 1,500 years ago. And again, alongside with these drawings, if you can see that, they've got very normal-looking animals, like the animals that we know of today. Yet this is a very uh, uh, accurate description of what we know today as a brontosaurus. Again, dinosaur bones were not, uh, were, were not found till. 400 years ago, 16, in the 1600s. It wasn't until the 1800s that we figured out they were dinosaurs. Yet, 500 to 1500 years ago, we're supposed to believe that an Indian drew this into uh, uh, a cave and just happened to have accurately drawn an animal that went ex- extinct 65 million years ago and no human had ever seen? No, this was drawn into this cave because humans had seen it. The same reason this was carved into this monastery, because humans had seen it. How about the dinosaur of northern Arizona? On two occasions in the late 1800s, Dr. Samuel Hubbard, honorary curator of archaeology of the Oakland Museum, visited an area in the Grand Canyon known as the Havasupai Canyon. Hubbard observed many curious inscriptions on the canyon walls during these trips, On one particular rock wall in the Havasupai Canyon, just above a group of ibex inscriptions, is a carving of an elephant. The remains of elephants are very common all over North America, from Alaska to Mexico. Furthermore, as noted earlier in our discussion of the Natural Bridge rock art, inscriptions that resemble elephants or mammoths are not unusual in the West. Undoubtedly, elephants once roamed North America. Consider, however, the implications of elephants and mammoth uh, rock art. For the ancients to have drawn images of these massive creatures with long tusks, it is reasonable to conclude that as with the ibex, Native Americans must have seen elephants, although ancient American elephants uh, and ibex uh, rock art is fascinating, excuse me, in and of itself, as is the American rhinoceros carved on rock walls near Moab, Utah. What caught Hubbard's attention more than anything else at Havasupai was a figure cut into the sandstone much more deeply than the elephant. Its height was 11.2 inches, had a neck approximately 5.1 inches in length, and a tail right at 9.1 inches. Hubbard photographed the petroglyph. What kind of animal is it? What kind of animal had a long neck, long tail, wide body, and once roamed northern Arizona? Dr. Hubbard believed that, the, that he had found an ancient drawing of a dinosaur. 
He wrote the fact that some prehistoric man made a pictograph of a dinosaur on the walls of this canyon upset completely all of our theories regarding the uh, antiquity of man. The fact that the animal is upright and balanced on its tail would seem to indicate that the prehistoric artist must have seen it alive. Evidence that dinosaurs were in the vicinity is proved by the tracks which were identified by Mr. Gilmore, a vertebrate paleontologist and renowned dinosaur fossil hunter, as belonging to one of the carnivorous dinosaurs. According to Hubbard, these tracks were in the painted desert not over 100 miles from the picture. Once again... We have a carving of an animal that looks more like a dinosaur than any other animal, living or extinct. What's more, all of the evidence points to the carving being genuine. Finally, fossil footprints prove that dinosaurs once lived in the same general area of the dinosaur-like rock art. Yet again, we ask, how could a man have drawn such an accurate picture of a creature he supposedly had never seen? And here's a picture of the dinosaur found uh, in the Grand Canyon, the dinosaur uh, petroglyph in the Grand Canyon. And again, there's no animal that looks like this that's alive today. Yet we know that this looks like a dinosaur. And what's amazing is that it was drawn by a human being who supposedly had never seen a dinosaur in real life. And people make this argument, well, yeah, well, maybe they didn't see the, uh, the dinosaur, but it was uh, brought down through myths and legends that somebody had seen this dinosaur. Well, here's the thing. We're going to talk about that next week. But even if that's true, somebody had seen this animal. They didn't go extinct 65 million years ago, and human beings were uh, uh, found uh, were, or evolved 200,000 years ago. Here's all I'm saying is, if the Bible is true, then human beings walked alongside dinosaurs. And if that's true, then we would expect to find some evidence. And what would that evidence be? Well, number one, the Bible would talk about it. Check. Number two, there'd be physical evidence for it. Check. In fact, there's more physical evidence, and i got to wrap this up because I'm running out of time. Soft dinosaur tissue has actually been found. Let me read to you from an article from CNN.com. Now, CNN is not a Christian organization, as you probably know. So this is written in a biased way, but let me just read it for you. It may be the oldest soft tissue sample ever found. Researchers discovered ancient collagen and protein remains preserved in the ribs of a dinosaur that walked the earth 195 million years ago. No, this doesn't, no, this doesn't mean Jurassic Park is about to become a reality, but finding such well-preserved organic remains from one of the oldest dinosaurs, the Luffingosaurus, is unprecedented. This finding extends the records of preserved organic remains more than 100 million years. Here's what they're saying. We didn't know that uh, organic tissue could last that long, but the fact that we found uh, soft dinosaur tissue and a dinosaur bone means that this uh, tissue must have survived 100 million years. No, it means that that dinosaur didn't live 100 million years ago. That's what it means. The researchers said in their study published in a uh, journal, Nature, communication on Tuesday, the researchers were from Taiwan, China, and Canada. I'm not going to go on and on. I have another article here about a professor who found uh, uh, soft tissue for a, uh, what was it? Let me see if I can find it real quickly. Um, Good night some sort of a dinosaur. Anyway, the, the whole point of the article is that instead of, instead of being praised for finding this, he got fired because it goes against everything that the school believed. This is in California. And uh, a triceratops, he found soft tissue on a triceratops fossil and they fired him for it because he found something that disproved their beliefs. The point is this. Dinosaurs' bones were not discovered until 1677. And identified, they were not even identified until 1824. And in 1677, they found these big bones. They didn't know what they were looking at. Let me just read this for you real quickly. In 1677, Robert Plott is credited with discovering the first dinosaur bone. 
But his best guess as to what it belonged to was a giant human. It wasn't until William Buckland, 1824, the first professor of geology at Oxford University, that a dinosaur fossil was correctly identified for what it was. We found dinosaurs, you know, the bones, 1677, identified them in 1824. And we were told that they went extinct before any human beings ever lived. Yet the Bible says that they lived and we've got physical evidence. Next week, we're going to talk about, and I encourage you to be with us as we continue through the book of Job. Next week, we're going to talk about the other evidence that we see uh, for, for proving this circumstantial evidence and testimonial evidence from eyewitness accounts, from credible and reliable sources that said that they saw dinosaurs. And here's all I'm saying. If this is true, and it is, then what this proves is that the Bible accurately describes these massive dinosaurs thousands of years ago. The word dinosaur was invented in 1842, so you're not going to find that in our, in our Bible. And what this proves is this. Both can't be right. Either evolutionary scientists are correct, or the Bible is correct. They can't both be right. And the evidence that I've showed you tonight should prove, and the evidence I'm going to show you next week will continue to prove, that men walked with dinosaurs. Therefore, the Bible is scientifically accurate and always ahead of science. The so-called secular science that contradicts the Bible is science falsely so-called. They say, no human being ever saw a dinosaur, yet Job lived 4,000 years ago, and God is like, look at Behemoth, describing a Behemoth. These human beings lived thousands of years ago, and they're carving these Behemoth into uh, the cave walls and into their temples and all these things. And here's all I'm saying is, th- this, this proves what you and I already know. The Bible is true. Amen. Now, here, here's the application for you. If God was right about dinosaurs... Don't you think he'd be right about your marriage? Don't you think he'd be right about your child rearing? Don't you think he'd be right about your finances? I mean, all that. Don't you think he'd be right about uh, uh, maturity and relational maturity? Don't you think he'd be right? All these things that we teach and preach around here and, and teach you to, to apply in your life. And people say, well, I don't know about that. I don't know if I trust that. If God was right about dinosaurs, can't you trust him? And everything else. And see, God, God is kind of done speaking to Job, but I believe that God is now speaking to us. He says, let me just throw something in here just to prove to you that I am God and the Bible is true. Behold Behemoth. You won't find out about him until the 1600s. But when you finally catch up to the Bible, you'll say, wow, it was there the whole time. The great wonder of God the word of God. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for this great chapter in the Bible that we can study together. And Lord, thank you for the fact that we truly can trust the Bible. The Bible is true. The Bible is accurate. When there is a conflict between science and the Bible, the Bible will always be proven correct. Lord, I pray you'd help us. If we, can, if, we, if we can see its accuracy here, then let us trust it in every other area of our lives as well. Let us have confidence that we truly have the Word of God. And Lord, help us to, to never allow scientific, science-fossy so-called arguments to cause us to doubt the Word of God, to know that the Bible is true, it's always been true, it will never be proven wrong, and science will eventually catch up to the Bible. We love you. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray. Amen.